Our speaker this evening is Professor Owen Gingerich, who's astrophysicist at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge and Professor of Astronomy and the History of Science at Harvard, who will be speaking on early editions of Copernicus. Sir. be a very bookish talk, but uh, just in order to get started on it, we have to not focus immediately on the 16th century when Copernicus's book was printed, but before that, to get you, you up to speed with a little bit of background as to what Copernicus was all about. So let's start out with the first slide, and I forgot to bring it. I thought I would start out with slides of two treasures uh, here in New York City. And the first is in the Lehman Collection at the Metropolitan, uh, Giovanni di Paolo. And it shows the medieval world view. Uh, that uh, shows the geocentric system with the Earth in the middle. Uh, the sphere of Earth, of water, of air, of fire, and the planets all very uh, homocentrically arranged in crystalline spheres that are one tight against the other, so that the whole universe is filled up. Conceptually, that's the inheritance from Aristotle, but it is not good enough to uh, actually predict the motions of the planets. For the motions of the planets, one had to have more of a mechanism. One had to have, for example, epicycles, which are those secondary wheels on which the planets can move. The orbits had to be arranged not concentric on the Earth, but slightly eccentric, and so on. So that the tension in astronomy at the time when Copernicus was a student, and I suppose since I'm speaking on Columbus Day, I can say that Copernicus was a student in Krakow in 1492. And uh, there was a certain tension as to how you would preserve, on one hand, the Aristotelian system with everything all dovetailed together, and how you would preserve the mathematics coming from Ptolemy to get that in. Well, that constitutes, the explanation of that constitutes an entire lecture in itself about uh, Copernicus and what he did. And that's not what it's about today, but that is the framework of a problem which he was trying to solve. It's curious that nobody had worked on this problem and solved it in the same sort of way earlier on. And so one has to look to some extent at external factors because there were no specific things in the time that Copernicus relied upon to move from that geocentric worldview to the heliocentric worldview. That is to say, it was not any there was no observation that forced that. His was an adventure of the mind, something simply in mind's eye. But one of the reasons that Copernicus was able to achieve success and that his success could be propagated and known to further generations was because the advent of printing had taken place and he was essentially a child during the incunabulum period. Here are the books of Copernicus's library captured by the Swedes during the Thirty Years' War and taken to Uppsala, where, at the time I took the picture, they were scattered throughout all the different classifications in the library. Since that time, they have come to realize that here is something unique, and they have put the Copernicus Library together, uh, and it's easier to get it fetched nowadays. It's almost the kind of books Copernicus was studying, and almost all there, I had to carry from the observatory library the uh, copy of the Calendarium Romanum Magnum in the middle with Copernicus's handwriting in it uh, in order to add it to the other books to get the complete set. And I cheated a little in putting the epitome of Regio, by Regio Montanus of uh, Ptolemy's Almagest here in the foreground in the picture because that's a printed book we know Copernicus owned, but we don't know where his copy of it is. So someday, some clever book dealer will turn up with it. Uh, but 
and I suppose the Swedes may have had it and sold it as a duplicate. Uh, uh, in any event, uh, the, the most famous example of that kind, I suppose you being bibliophiles know, that's when Göttingen sold off one of its copies of Newton's Principia. Naturally, they sold the dirty one that was all marked up. It was acquired by Martin Bodmer, the great bibliophile from Geneva, and it turned out to be Leibniz's copy with his criticism of Newton in the margins. Uh, here you can see uh, Copernicus's original manuscript, which incredibly is still preserved. I say incredibly because normally if a manuscript went to the printer, it was torn up in the various sheets handed out to the typesetters uh, and not preserved. Or at the very least, one would expect to find the typesetters marks in the manuscript. And since this didn't happen, one can only assume that another copy of it was made and carried off to Nuremberg for printing, that this one stayed behind with Copernicus. Uh, it shows the sun in the middle, the zones where the various planets are found, uh, stacked up very neatly. Copernicus, in his book, praises the idea that the sun is unique and what would be more fitting than to place it in the middle of everything. He is working not just uh, to do that, but to achieve a kind of a perfection of the spheres, to replace certain mechanisms that he saw were uh, awkward and were unphilosophical and were spoiling the system. So he has come up with a system that is beautiful and aesthetic, and when he gets it all arranged, everything seems linked together nicely, and it ends up with Mercury, the fastest planet in the middle, Saturn, the slowest planet at the edge, everything arranged in order in between, and this has a very powerful aesthetic appeal to Copernicus so that he's able to just go in the face of all the given Aristotelian physics and so on in order to uh, propagate his new system. But he probably would have just written this manuscript and tucked it away on the library shelves of the cathedral at Fraunberg, or Fraunberg as it is today, in the northernmost diocese of Poland, a way where few people would have heard much of anything about it excepting for the fact that earlier he had put out a small pamphlet describing the system. It had gone into various hands, and rumors had traveled around about it, so that over in Lutheran territory, uh, in Wittenberg, a young uh, student who was just to take up a professorship decided to go traveling to find out everything that was new before he began teaching there. And so, in making his inquiries, he found out about this novel cosmology, resolved to go to the source and find out about it. And so what did he do? Well, he took with him some books as gifts for his teacher. And here they are, the three volumes which young George Joachim Redicus presented to Copernicus. It's inscribed at the bottom. It says to the distinguished doctor, Nicholas Copernicus, my teacher from uh, George Joachim Redicus. Perhaps more to the point, this is a book uh, printed by Johannes Petraeus in Nuremberg, uh, and the majority of the books in this cluster are, in fact, from Petraeus. It's almost as if young Redicus was the book salesman uh, going out to a potential author with samples of the, of the printing just to show him how nice it would be if he would do something like that. It wasn't plain that Copernicus was really interested in printing. In any event, there was a, no sufficiently large printer or distribution uh, there uh, anywhere nearby where Copernicus was working as a canon in the cathedral. However, nearby in Gdansk, Danzig, there was a sufficient printer for young Redicus to have struck off a first report, a narratio prima, uh, in which he described the heliocentric system and some of the reasoning behind it. Uh, this turns out to be a relatively rare book. I have been able to locate approximately 20 copies of this first edition. Uh, it recently commanded the highest price of any uh, printed book in the history of science, 
when a copy was auctioned for approximately $200,000. Uh, this, uh, Harvard, I'm happy to say, has a copy, but I am showing you the Yale copy because it happens to have an inscription from Reticus at the bottom of it, uh, just to give you a little bit closer link to the author. This book was successful, successfully received at least, and promptly another copy, another edition, was pirated and printed from Basel. So the word got around, Copernicus was not subjected to so much scorn, and so he sent off his book to, with Reticus for possible printing. Reticus first printed out in Wittenberg the mathematical tables of the book and the trigonometry section for use of his students there. But in Wittenberg, there were no printers really large enough or equipped to handle such a large technical book. They were very busy printing Bibles, Martin Luther sermons, and small textbooks for the students at the university. But this was to be a book that would be too expensive for uh, student use, and it would require an international distribution to make the thing pay off. So Reticus took the book down to Petraeus in Nuremberg, and there it was printed. It was uh, then taken around, I suppose, to the Frankfurt Book Fair and other such distribution places, and copies of it were disseminated largely throughout Northern Europe. And I will have more to say a little bit later on about the distribution of it. You can see there the, uh, the printed text uh, with this diagram that you saw previously in Copernicus's own manuscript. Well, this is a very technical and formidable book of about 400 pages. Back in 1971, when I was on a sabbatical leave in England and discussing this book with one of the other Copernicus buffs over there, uh, we were looking ahead to 1973, the quinquecentennial of Copernicus's birth, and talking about De Revolutionibus, thinking how few people must have read it in the uh, 16th century to the very end or to be able to read it critically, because it is a very formidable treatise indeed, nothing just for bedtime reading unless you're suffering from insomnia. We began to think who the possible readers of it could be, in fact, and we named them all. Erasmus Reinhold. There's no portrait of him, but perhaps it's even better to show you his book, The Prutenic Tables, which were based upon Copernicus's De Revolutionibus. He's the professor who stayed home at Wittenberg and taught astronomy while young Reticus was off doing the traveling. Reticus, of course, read the book. But we also must mention uh, another reader, uh, Andreas Osiander, the man who read the uh, who did the proofreading at the final stages when Reticus took another job and went off to a, a specially paid position at Leipzig, leaving the last uh, fraction of the book to be proofread by Osiander. Osiander was the minister here in the St. Lorenz uh, Kirche in uh, Nuremberg, and so I show you the, the uh, cathedral with its Weizdvos uh, carving, which had just been installed at that time, uh, to give you a little bit of the ambiance, which I think might be more meaningful than to show you Osiander's portrait. And Osiander added an anonymous foreword to the book, saying that you shouldn't worry about the hypothesis contained here. Uh, you may be thinking that liberal art, the liberal arts are about to be thrown into con confusion, but don't worry. It's the job of an astronomer to uh, observe carefully the positions of the planets and then to make hypotheses for the prediction of the planets, but these need not be true nor even probable. And uh, that turned out to be an interesting kind of forward to disarm the potential critics who might have otherwise felt threatened by the book. Here is Michael Mestlin of the next generation, a teacher at Tübingen and probably most famous for being the teacher of Johannes Kepler, who owned a copy of Copernicus's book. We know he tells us so, and uh, we know that, he, uh, that he, he studied it very carefully and based his work on it. There are other figures who might have owned a copy. 
Here, for example, is Johann Schoner, to whom the Narratio Prima was dedicated, a scholar in Nuremberg, and probably uh, uh, the person who told Redicus in the first place about the Copernican cosmology. So he probably would have owned a copy. Down here is Christopher Clavius, the man who is uh, perhaps the leading engineer of the Gregorian calendar reform, whose 400th anniversary we're observing this week. That is to say, 400 years ago, this week didn't exist because this was the week that was skipped in order to bring the calendar into, uh, into step. Well, we named about 10 people. Uh, I don't think we included Galileo on our list because we figured from his taste and what we know about him, he's not the sort who would have read the book through to the end. Uh, he was interested in the idea of the, of the heliocentric cosmology, but not in the little tiny details uh, which, with, in which Copernicus's book abounded. Well, after having that conversation in Leeds, uh, I continued that particular journey up to Edinburgh. And here is the Royal Observatory, one of the few observatories that owes its existence to a rare book collection, given by Lord Crawford on the uh, expectation that the Scottish nation would make a suitable building to house it. And this they did, and there's a wonderful collection of early astronomy. I went up there and had a look at a lot of books, including this one, the first edition of Copernicus's book. And I was astonished. It was annotated from beginning to end by someone who caught dozens of numerical and typographical errors in the book. So somebody who read it carefully and studied it hard. I, I thought, well, now, if there are only 10 people who read this book from the beginning to, to the end and so on, this is very improbable. How would the very next copy I look at be so thoroughly annotated? Then I. Then I thought, maybe, by some incredible stroke, I'm looking at the book of one of those 10 people. And so I began to wonder who it could be. And uh, a set of clues began pointing to uh, Erasmus Reinhold, the professor at Wittenberg. Uh, the, I missed one important clue within the book. It, it spoke of Redicus as our Joachim, uh, which I think would have perhaps been a giveaway if I had noticed that right away. Uh, what I did notice were the blind stamped initials in the cover of the book, ER. But when I went to make the rubbing of it, it turned out to be ERS. Now, I was such an amateur at the time, I didn't realize that that was exactly what I should have expected. Erasmus Reinholdus Salveldensis, the, from the place where he was born. So it took me a little bit to get that sorted out, but then I realized that that was indeed the right thing. This was Reinhold's copy. Now, on the front page, he doesn't say, this is a fantastic new cosmology, the earth is thrown into motion, and the sun is set still. Instead, it says, the axiom of astronomy Celestial motion is uniform and circular or composed of uniform and circular parts. Something quite different. It was the Wittenberg way of looking at this, to looking at it as a mathematical hypothesis in which you did a very clever rearrangement of the circles and you came up with a better circular motion than what Ptolemy had. And if you don't believe that, you can look in the book and see here on the great cosmological page where Copernicus describes in glowing detail what this system explains. There's only one small annotation at the top pointing out an obvious error on this, uh, on some of the numbers here. But if you go to the back of the book where Copernicus is laboring through the technicalities of using multiple little circles to make sure that it's all generated by combinations of uniform circular motion, well, Reinhold is absolutely full of news and he has annotated it not just once, but in several passes going through it. I was quite stunned by this finding. It seemed to me that here was something profitable that one might be able to do. 
Copernicus, as a person and as a field of study, had been so well plowed over for a hundred years that it seemed like it would be very difficult to come up with anything new for this quinquicentennial. But here was something that nobody had really looked at. How was the book studied by people in the 16th century? What could you tell if you looked at copies to see what sort of marginal annotations it had? So I resolved that I would try to look at quite a few of these books, just to see what evidence of study remains in the margins of the book. And you have to notice that the margins are indeed generous. Paper was one of the most expensive things for publishing, apart from the initial investment in the type and the presses. So that to make the paper so generous as this meant that there was some kind of expectation an expectation coming up from the Middle Ages that people wishing to study the book seriously might in fact want some handy writing surface to put their own glosses in. So I began a search to look around to see where the copies could be and to find out something about them. And just to give you a little bit of an idea of where one can go to find copies of Copernicus's book, I thought I would show you, for example, the Vienna National Library, which, needless to say, has a first edition and a second, and uh, another good library down the road from Vienna. This is Melk. The, uh, this is one of the monastery libraries. Monastery libraries, as a group, are not particularly rich in this book. Most of them had the book at one time and then subsequently sold it off as being irrelevant, particularly when the prices of these early science things began to climb and it was a source of some money. But Melk is a, is a place that still retains it and has a uh, second edition of Copernicus's book. Well, not all the libraries are so splendid uh, in their Rococo or Baroque decorations. Here's modern Polish architecture, the Jagiellonian Library in Krakow, and here I am uh, in the Jagiellonian Library with that original manuscript in front of me, and it's being compared against the facsimile. Uh, but uh, this also has some interesting, interestingly annotated first editions there. Here I am with my colleague, Robert Westman. Uh, this happens to be in Bucharest, in the Academy of Sciences Library, where we're both taking a close look at a second edition of Copernicus's book there. This is up in, uh, in Sweden, in the observatory library. The librarian is just putting away the Calendarium Romanum Magnum with Copernicus's annotation in it. And there is a second edition here with, I think that's the book in his other hand, uh, with uh, a very, very early copy of one of Copernicus's letters written on the uh, end papers. You can see that they now keep the books in a safe, uh, or at least in a steel cabinet. Uh, the first time I was there, they were all on the open shelves, and I, was, I protested so vigorously that the observatory felt obliged to buy a cabinet for them. <clears throat> Here we are down in Vienne in southern France. It's not the library. I didn't think to take a picture of the library, which is nearby, but my friend Jerzy Dobzitski from Poland, who works with me on some of these things, is standing there. It's, it's known to all gourmets as the home of Les Pyramides, which is one of those three flower establishments in the Michelin Guide. Uh, but any rate, the library was too small to photograph. It was sort of matchbox size, and it has a first edition Copernicus. I said, this is a wonderful Copernicus. Uh, it has a nice signature on the front. Perhaps you can read it. Some of you may recognize the name, Pontus de Tayart, as one of the French Pleiades, uh, one, of the peop one of the group of poets who helped establish the modern French language in the uh, end of the uh, 16th century. And, and I was so impressed with this, I wanted to take this picture of it but the library was too small for taking a picture. They said, well, why don't you just take it out in the city square? There's light, good sunlight out there, and I'm sure you can get the picture. <laughs> so I did, and here's the picture. 
If you want to start finding the books, it's a totally different thing if you want to find all possible copies of a book or if you just want to find an example of the book. The National Union Catalog is very nifty if you want to find an example of a book someplace. But if you want to find all of the copies in America, uh, you will discover fairly soon on that the National Union Catalog lists as first editions two facsimiles of Copernicus's book and has approximately 30% uh, of all of the copies in America listed. Uh, so it's not too complete. One of the places that seems to be very complete is Cambridge, England, where there is the Adams catalog of 16th century books uh, in uh, Cambridge libraries. It took some staying around in uh, Cambridge for some time to, to discover that Trinity College Library, which is shown very splendidly here, has not just the two copies of the first edition, which are listed in the Adams catalog, but a third uncatalogued copy as well. Well, why is this? Well, three copies is really too many for their library to have, so it was set aside for possible sale. But since Trinity College is the wealthiest of all the Cambridge colleges, and since the book at auction would fetch uh, 40 or $50,000 and therefore make the newspapers, this would generate very bad publicity that Trinity was selling off its heritage. So that as a result, they just sort of were sitting on it and eventually I was able to go and get it into the census. They were sitting on quite a stack of things. The Newton scholar, Tom Whiteside, went down and had a look and found out that this marked up copy of uh, uh, Descartes' Geometria was in fact marked up by none other than Isaac Newton. And they were spared the embarrassment of auctioning that off uh, because he found it first and they have pretty well uh, gone out of the business of selling off duplicates as things stand. Well, I think that uh, gives you a little bit of an idea of how to go looking for them. If we can turn on the lights for a little bit, I'll be able to see you and uh, I'll talk to you now something about the general problems of what you do if you want to find all copies of a given book. Now, naturally, you, you start in by using the union catalogs that do exist. For example, there's a nice union catalog in Switzerland, in Bern. It does not, however, list the splendid first edition in Bern itself. Uh, so uh, these kinds of indices have, have a great deal of usefulness, but they're not the complete way of going about it. So after you've exhausted that kind of approach, then one starts in by writing to libraries. One can get, for example, the uh, world of learning and look at the libraries and see when they were founded and how many early books they purportedly contain. And this gives a good index as to whether or not the library might have it. And so one can write scores of letters to places uh, just to see. And libraries are really, by and large, very good at answering letters. I blanketed uh, Italy with, with letters and I got Another, uh, they, uh, a copy might have been carried over there uh, by the uh, conquistadors or by subsequent book collectors or so on. All of that, by the way, was in vain. It was a long time before I was able finally to locate a copy south of the border in Guadalajara. But it's the only one that way I found. Though I know that copies of the book came into uh, Mexico early on since there still exists a bill of lading for a ship that docked in Veracruz in 1600 listing a Copernicus book as one of the things on board. Well, if you're going to control ideas, you have to record all the books. Uh, so, uh, any rate, I haven't found that particular copy. When one writes to libraries, one doesn't always do it perfectly, I must say. I later went off to Munich and saw where there had long been sort of a Copernicus Research Bureau and they had collected various information and on one of the sheets I noticed 
that they seemed to think there was a second edition in Liverpool, a place that it seemed so unlikely to me that I hadn't bothered to inquire. So the first library I tried, the, uh, didn't have it, but they said try the university, and so I tried the university, and the letter back said, we assume it is only the second edition that you're interested in because we do have two copies of the first edition. <coughs> well, at any rate, uh, I made a trip to Liverpool. Another good way of going about it on a book of this sort is, in fact, to ask the book dealers. Uh, they know where there are books in permanent collections in, and institutions as well as knowing who's bought them. Uh, collectors who happen to have got them uh, in the past 30 years or maybe 40 years if their memories, uh, collective memories go back. So a lot of people have been extremely helpful on this. Uh, Jake Zeitlin, for example, was, was very, very helpful to me. He, he even helped me in a, in a clandestine operation to uh, go into uh, the home of a collector who had become so senile that uh, it was impossible to deal with him. So while his nurse took him out to the swimming pool, we went in and carefully measured and recorded the book and uh, left completely unknown by him. <laughs> some, some book dealers uh, have been, are, are very secretive because of course uh, their list of customers is one of their most valuable uh, possessions. Uh, something not to be given up easily. Most book dealers are quite content to tell me about copies that they know other dealers have sold uh, without mentioning so much the copies they've sold. Uh, Hans Krauss was extraordinarily secretive, for example, but finally decided that he would at least show me the descriptions of the copies that he was sold. As the cards were shown to me, I gave the location of each one, and when it was done, I asked him about a few others that he had sold that weren't on the list, and I think I uh, thoroughly disarmed him because he realized that, in fact, I had tracked down uh, every copy that he had recorded as having sold. Uh, but it is very important to go and sit with dealers and just chat about these things because all kinds of information comes out that is not necessarily easy to obtain otherwise. Something very tantalizing for me was printed in a book catalog by Ernst Weil uh, sometime back. He's not living anymore, but around sometime around uh, 1960 in a book catalog, he announced that he hoped maybe to make a census of Copernicus's book. Now it would be very uh, splendid to be able to get some records of a start on that. And in fact, just a week ago, I received Ernst Weil's record book, uh, which describes the motions of all the books, he, uh, of the Copernicus book from 1934 to 1964. Uh, that were passing through, uh, particularly the London market, but he had out sort of the grapevine across to other places. And so in there these pages of densely packed notes, it, you can see where the books are going. Uh, and I have been able, by working through it, to see that there are a number of things that, uh, that I simply have not traced. And the great majority I know I was really done in by finding a little notice over here, Shop Catalog 23, Johann Schoner's copy, because I had not found one that I had identified specifically as being Johann Schoner's copy, so I hastily went out and looked up this catalog number 23 in 1957 and realized immediately that it was indeed a book I had seen. It had passed through the hands of another dealer and who had lost this attribution. And when the Linda Hall Library in Kansas City bought it, they didn't know that anybody had made that attribution to a small paper instrument that is inserted in the book, not bound with it. And I was very delighted to look at my notes and see that I had said, this is annotated by someone with a handwriting remarkably similar to Johann Schoner. But my, my own very 
close examination of it had left me uh, rather doubting that it was uh, an instrument from Schoner, but now that I see from this detail that another, that somebody else had thought so, I'll have to take a second look at it. There was something else amusing that had happened along the way. Uh, <clears throat> I had met up with Alexander Pogo, the man with this improbable name, has been the rare book librarian at uh, Caltech, sort of ex officio, and he described uh, with some pride how when he was going through the Caltech Copernicus, he suddenly realized that two of the leaves had been inserted from a second edition instead of the first. Now, the second edition, I, I've been telling you all about the book. I should perhaps tell you when it was published. In 1543, same year as the great Vesalius, and so on, it was a vintage year for, for uh, science books. The second edition came out in 1566. It came out, I believe, soon after the first edition went out of print. At Harvard, we have a, book a collection of booksellers' catalogs from the 1590s, and it lists this second edition as being in print, but a line has been drawn through it, meaning that it must have gone out of print around 1595, which would mean that it was in print for uh, not quite 30 years. And so if the first edition would be in print for maybe 20 years, that would mean that striking up a second edition in 1566 would be reasonable. But it was a page-for-page -page reprint of the first one, the only difference being that they added more typographical errors. And uh, when they made that uh, reprint, they could do it just by tearing up a first edition and handing the sheets out to the typesetters who would then make sure that at the end of each signature, the type matched from the first edition, thereby creating a situation in which you could take a page from a second edition and insert it in a first edition without getting the text out of step. And what Pogo noticed was that this had happened to this book. So Caltech indignantly sent the book back. Well, in, the, in order to get an idea of how completely I've been doing this thing, I have gone through the auction records to see all of the copies sold that have gone through London or New York since oh, the 1890s. And in fact, I have been able to trace every single one of these for which there is a sufficient description uh, to be able to really identify them. Or I, I'll back off on that. I've been able to trace them back to about 1918 this way. Uh, but uh, it, it was plain that a copy of the book had gone through the auction house, uh, listed as lacking two leaves, and subsequently sold as perfect, and I had traced it to Caltech. So, I wrote to Dr. Pogo and I said, will you please go and check the pages such and such in your copy? And there came an indignant letter saying, you've got it all mixed up. I told you that it was the previous copy we had that had the replacement leaves, but we sent that one back. I wrote again, I said, I know full well your story about this other copy, which I haven't found, but uh, uh, do go and look at those leaves. And the letter came back. You're right. They were very clever with the coffee. Uh, the, the yellowing and the staining had all been made to match. And I was very puzzled about that because I knew that Vile had something to do with, with what happened. And so it's delightful to get the book and to see what happened. Uh, <clears throat> He says, bought with Chalair the Finch copy, last leaf in facsimile, and the Southern Christie copy lacking one leaf. Made the Finch copy fine. Cat catalog 19, now California Institute of Technology, 1954. Then a later entry, made up the Southern Christie copy, now California Institute of Technology, 55. <laughs> uh, so, it's plain that he didn't notice 
the two leaves having been made up in the, the Finch coffee, uh, which had been very mysterious to me because I had seen that he had advertised it and hadn't been able to figure out where it was. Um, uh, it, this, uh, uh, he hadn't noticed the two second edition leaves, which Pogo did notice, so when they sent it back, he simply undid that copy and put it back into the other copy uh, and made that one complete. Uh, this leaves the mystery to me as to where the incomplete one is, uh, since that simply hasn't turned up. Well, anyway, you can see the fun I've had in trying to chase this down, but uh, if I tell you that I have now located 251 copies of the first edition and have actually inspected 247 of those, and that I have located about 280 copies of the second edition and have looked at uh, something over 250 of those, then the next question, which you're all just getting ready to ask, is, well, how many were printed? And it turns out that there's no records left from Petraeus in Nuremberg as to his edition size. One finds a statement very commonly put in secondary sources that one could expect an edition at this time to be 1,000 copies. This is a round number for which there is very little evidence. The best evidence one has for edition size is uh, from the Planton Moretus Press where there are very complete records and where one can see science books uh, in editions of anything from, well, 300 to 1,200. Uh, but if you went much lower than that, the book had to be subsidized because not enough copies were being made. In general, uh, the Planton Moretus Press uh, in uh, Antwerp was running through 800 to 1,200 copies in a run, but what they were selling were herbals, which had big sales to medical doctors. And this kind of thing, I don't think, is in the same category as an extremely technical astronomical book. And since the printer did not want to tie up a lot of money in paper printed upon in unsold stock, he had to be very, very careful about not overprinting in something like this. So how many copies might he have done? Well, it was suggested to me that there was a way that I had of deducing that, which you couldn't normally find. And that was to make up a genuine list of who should have owned the book in the 16th century. And now being a lot smarter than I was in 19... Uh, uh, I, 71, maybe not smarter, but at least a lot more knowledgeable. Uh, I went down through and could make up a list now, not of 10 owners, but maybe of 70 owners that one that would, should surely have owned this book. But then, because I know the provenances of these copies, I can go through and I can see how many of those 70 are found. And it turns out that I find just under half of these. Uh, of course, some of the copies will have their provenances destroyed in the process of rebinding. And there are some people who simply don't write their names in the books they own. So that if one finds less than this number, say 40%, one would have to suppose that maybe more than half are accounted for. So my deduction is that the original edition must have been something between 400 and 500 copies. And probably both the first and the second edition were comparable in, in the numbers being printed. The book was a, a fairly expensive one. This information has come to light because it is possible on rare occasions to find a price written in the book. The one place where one would really like to have it would be in the, uh, in the copy owned by Achilles Perman Gasser, a 
great bibliophile and collector who is very fastidious about writing the source of each of his books and the price and the price for binding. But in this particular case, he was friends of the printer, Petraeus, and received one free. So there is no price recorded by him. But it does seem to be that the price is about one florin. But this doesn't tell you much more to know what one florin is, because you have to ask, what does this mean in terms of purchasing power? Now, when Redicus went down to Leipzig, I alluded to the fact that he got a special salary. It was specially higher than the other salaries to lure him to come from Wittenberg, and it was 140 florins per annum. So this means, if you sort of work that out for an associate professor's salary nowadays, uh, that maybe the florin was roughly worth uh, $150. Uh, so the, the whole economy was quite different because of uh, the, the whole pricing structure of everything was, was different. I can find out the price of firewood and of cows and of things like this, but it doesn't exactly tell you uh, how this works out. But we can at least be sure that the book was quite expensive. It was not so expensive that a university professor of astronomy could not afford to own it. He would be obliged to own it as part of his, uh, his, his business expenses. But he certainly could not require this as a book for his students to buy. So, in fact, we do find interesting things. Students copying from their teacher the notes in the margins into their own copies. But we've also found a small notebook copying out all of the an marginal annotations and the places where they were to go, clearly by a, an astronomer, a, a, a known astronomer, but who was too poor, apparently, to buy the book for himself and had to keep this notebook uh, in hand as a separate item. Uh, well, uh, lest Dr. Bellinger becomes nervous that I'm running gloriously over time, I had better march on to my slides, which I promised him would be the wind-up of it, and we would be getting near the end. Here is my friend Dobzitsky again with Harrison Horblet looking over a most remarkable copy of the book. Uh, it's now owned by Haven O'More in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was part of the great uh, first part of the Horblet auction. And you can see that it is a presentation copy from Johannes, Joachimus Redicus, professor at Leipzig, to Andreas Orofaber, who was at that time the dean at the University of Wittenberg. What is most spectacular about it, in some respects, is this long Greek poem written by Joachim Camerarius, who was the senior professor at Leipzig. Now, in those days, it was extremely customary to have elegant Greek poems as part of the prefatory, prefatory material for books. And I suspect that Redicus asked Camerarius to write the poem for the book, and that somehow, since it was out of his hands and in the hands of Petraeus and Osiander up in Nuremberg, that this poem did not get included, and instead, quite different front matter, which Redicus was not expecting. So he asked Camerarius to copy it in the book to be set up to the dean. Uh, I draw your attention to the fact that in Greek, Joachim Camerarius's initials are Iota Kappa, because here is the copy of the book owned by Johannes Kepler, and now at uh, the uh, University of Leipzig University Library. It is, was known for a long time that it contained this long Latin poem in the front. And it says at the end, I.K. Vertit, that is to say, Johannes Kepler translated it. But nobody knew where the original was. And the moment that Dobzhitsky saw the book there at Horblitz, he said, hey, this Greek is Kepler's poem. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say Johannes Kepler. It's one of those puns that Kepler loved so much. The I-K can be for Joachim Camerarius as well. Well, that's just one of the curious things that got threaded together. It was in this copy that Kepler obtained 
that the author of the anonymous preface at the beginning was inscribed, Andreas Oziander. There you can see it. And it was from Kepler that the whole word got around that it was Oziander who had written this introductory material. This is the copy of Michael Mestlin's. It's in a small public library in northern uh, Switzerland, in Schaffhausen. And there you can see, just inside the back cover, the purchase information. This book, I, Michael Mestlin, bought from the widow, widow of uh, Victorinus Tregalius, uh, the sister of so-and-so. And there's, at the bottom, it's abbreviated, the price. This is the price. One and a half florins. So, for a used book being sold in 1570, it's about 30 years afterwards, the price is now up a little higher, but there's also been an inflation by about a factor of two between those two times. We're not living in the only inflationary period in world history. Here's another person we should have put on our list of possible owners. That's Thomas Diggs, the first Copernican in England. Why his book? is to be found in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, I don't know. But there it is, saying the common opinion airs. Very few other annotations in the book. I finally found the one of Christopher Clavius. Clavius does not annotate very thoroughly, but he does annotate the mathematical section. And here, Kepler has had a small lapse. He's forgotten one thing required to complete his theorem. and. Uh, Clavius is quite severe with him. Hallucinatur hic Copernicus. Here Copernicus is dreaming. <laughs> this is a rather interesting copy because it's the one that was owned and not exactly annotated, censored by Galileo Galilei. And there you can see some of the censoring. Now the censoring of this book is unique. It's the only book for which the index of prohibited books announced the specific changes that were to be made in it. Many books were put on the list until corrected. This is the one where the corrections were considered so subtle and sensitive that they were explicitly spelled out in 1620. As a result of my survey, I am now able to tell how successful this censoring was. Uh, it says, for example, that you can cut out all of chapter 8 on the uh, re rebuttal of the uh, ancient proofs for the uh, immobility of the earth, but that students will probably, for the flow of the book, wish to have it included and simply to cut out a few small passages in it. This is the only case in Cremona where the severe tactic was taken and the page was sliced out but that still left the back and front of the other uh, pages uh, and so those were simply pasted over with paper and as you can see the bookworms just love that wheat glue used to fasten down the paper and they have gone to work on it in general the copies of the book are not censored that way but are censored either by crossing out heavily, or as in Galileo's case, very lightly, the passages in question and the new text put in. Here you can see a partial map of Europe showing the locations of the book at the present time. Uh, and the black filled in dots are the ones, the copies that have been censored. Now you can see that there's a copy up in England that has been censored. That came from an Austrian monastery library in relatively recent times. Uh, in those other books scattered in Northern Europe have got up there as a result of the continual migration of books that has taken place uh, since 1620. The fact that there are so many uncensored books in Italy is because book movements go both directions. And the Vatican, for example, has no censored copy. Uh, they have collected a lot of copies from other places. Uh, most interesting, perhaps, is to see the Iberian Peninsula. You've all heard of the Spanish Inquisition, and yet the books aren't censored there. The Spaniards considered that a local Italian imbroglio, uh, not for them. Their editions of the index explicitly permit Copernicus's book, uh, which is quite fascinating. 
I have made a second copy of this uh, showing the positions of the books in 1620. Uh, it is in the August copy of Scientific American, for those of you who want to look it up. Unfortunately, they wanted things simple, so they suppressed one piece of information which this contains, and I haven't made up the corresponding slide of the distribution in 1620. But in 1620, what you would find is that uh, about 60% of all the copies in Italy did get censored, and not many outside. But these symbols are showing you something else. The first editions are shown as triangles. Uh, no. The first editions are being shown as circles, and the second edition as triangles. <clears throat> now, if you <clears throat> start looking at it, you will see that there are lots of copies of the second edition, the triangles, just peppering Italy and southern France, and relatively few of the first edition. Most of the first editions were carried down there in later times. It appears that the book trade was such that Petraeus from Nuremberg supplied the Lutheran uh, territories and Poland uh, and down to Paris, but very few copies got over to England. As far as I can see, no booksellers in England handled it. The copies came into England by students who went to the continent and brought the books back with them. Now, you can look, for example, in the Bodleian Library, which has a first edition and also has, uh, I think, five copies of the second edition. All five of those second editions were in place by around 1620 in the Bodleian. I went through all the vellum donors' books and located the provenances of all of them, and they're all accounted for. The first edition was bought as an antiquarian item by the Bodleian in the last century. The same thing is true with Cambridge University Library. Their first edition, again, bought as an antiquarian item in the last century. They were supplied with the second edition. Well, I have now run myself over time and haven't told you what some of the real fruits of this study have been. Uh, I've told you something about the censorship, and I do think that's rather fascinating because there has been simply no opportunity for anyone to do a comparable study on the effectiveness of the Inquisition in censoring the books. I just wanted to show you a couple of copies that are particularly interestingly annotated and to suggest that we have turned up several large families of annotations where the annotations have been copied from master to student and from that student's students to his students and so on down for some generations. Here's a copy in Prague, long recognized to be from the library of Tycho Brahe, very thoroughly annotated. Here's a copy which I found in Rome in the Vatican Library in the Manuscript Division and if you look sharply, you'll see it also says the axioms of astronomy, celestial motion is uniform and circular, and so on, clearly bearing a close resemblance to the copy of Erasmus Reinhold. But saying that this book is in the hand of a distinguished man, and it contains fascinating manuscript material at the back, showing, for example, going into an Earth-centered system with Terra in the middle, a system that is very similar to what Tycho Brahe came up with. I was astonished to realize in the whole process, I, I wondered whose copy of the book it was. I went to Paris to a uh, Copernicus meeting where one of the Czechs brought with him a facsimile of the copy in Prague. And I was so struck by the similarity of the handwriting that I rearranged my flights. I took this facsimile copy back to Rome and laid it down beside that other one and found out that they were indeed the same. I thought, in fact, that I was following in Tycho Brahe's steps as he worked out his own cosmology. Now, I hope I've shown the slide long enough for you to have memorized it, particularly the annotations there on the side and that drawing, because when you have a look at this copy, you'll see the same color to the copy in Prague that it must 
be a copy of yet another unknown one in this family of Tycho Brahe books. Another one having been turned up by Westman in Liège. I postulated that there was a fourth which had been used as the source for this. Lo and behold, I found it by an, one of those incredible stories, uh, too long to tell here. Uh, and, uh, but when I found it, it was cut up into four separate pieces because the owner was using it to repair other copies of Copernicus's book. I won't say anything more about it other than to say I, I, I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry at that moment. Uh, Westman said, this is incredible that Tycho Brahe, such a busy man, wealthy man, building all those instruments and so on, would have had time to annotate four copies of the book. And, I, and he said, surely he must have used a secretary. And I said, nonsense, these aren't the kind of remarks a secretary puts in. A secretary can make four identical copies, but not four copies each different. But when we made the handwriting comparison, it very quickly turned out that indeed it wasn't Tycho Brahe's handwriting, despite what had been thought for 300 years about this copy in Prague. And because of the pattern of sleuthing that we had done up to that time, uh, it, we were able to sort it out within a month or so after realizing it wasn't Tycho's and to realize it was a copy owned by a man named Paul Wittig. And Wittig had copied out from somebody who had copied out from Reinhold's book. And it's part of a long cluster. Well, you still can ask, how come did, did Wittig own four copies of the book? And I think it comes back around again uh, to the idea that the book was so expensive. Let's turn the lights back on now that you've had a look at Copernicus. The book is sufficient, was it sufficiently expensive then that perhaps Wittig, a wealthy man, was able to own four copies to hand around to his students so that his students could use the book which they couldn't afford to buy. Well, it was an expensive book then, and it's an expensive book now. Expensive enough, I suppose, to be worth stealing. Uh, the fact that I've made such a census, and which contains dimensions of all the books plus indications of the annotations and so on, makes it now more difficult to steal one. Uh, about a year ago, uh, I was sent a book catalog from a small uh, firm in Washington that didn't deal in science books. And among the books selling for $40, $80, $150, was a second edition Copernicus being offered for 8,700, which rather stood out and which my various friends of the network sent me copies of. I scratched my head and began to think about this copy and went to my census and noticed an uncanny similarity between that and a copy lost by the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. So I called the Franklin Institute and suggested that they might contact the FBI and uh, uh, the uh, FBI acted at first uninterested because if, you, if you've stolen something more than so many years ago, seven years ago or something, it's no longer a criminal charge. Uh, you can get your book back if you want to sue in civil court, but you can't send the man to jail. Um, so the Franklin Institute asked if I could find out anything more about the book. So I called the dealer and he said yes, he had it there. No, he couldn't send it to me because it wasn't his. It was only on consignment. I said, how about the title page? Because my notes showed that there was a erased oval library stamp. And he described the title page, finally ending up by saying, and, oh, yes, there is an erased oval library stamp. Uh, so I was then, then really 100% sure. And when I called back to the Franklin Institute, they said, but, well, the Washington, D.C. FBI is interested in this book, uh, and we're going to go down. What should we do? And I said, take along your book plates, because they're of an unusual dimension, and the imprint of the book plates is still in the book. And so they did, and when their book plates just matched exactly, like the prints, I suppose, bringing the shoe back to Cinderella, uh, the dealer said, take it, it's yours. Of course, the Franklin Institute didn't get to take it. The FBI took it as evidence. The dealer said, I've been to his house. 
uh, he has lots of stuff, the name being recognized as a former employee of the Franklin Institute. The FBI did not stage a raid. They simply went posing as book buyers and came away with several thousand items. And uh, a few months ago, I was subpoenaed by the FBI as an expert witness to go down to, to identify the book and look at the things. And now what is hanging over me, uh, like a sword of Damocles, is being subpoenaed down again for the, for the court case, which I won't have so much say about when it happens. And I am told that probably if I go down, there will be some very rapid plea bargaining and that, that I won't have any chance to testify at all. It will just be sort of standing there to frighten them. Uh, so I just wanted you to see that uh, uh, the whole business of trying to make the world's complete record of a book uh, has its adventures. Uh, it is something that it has rarely been done. An attempt was made to get all of the copies of the Shakespeare first folio, now quite out of date. I think librarians know where all the copies of the Gutenberg Bible are, and they have a pretty good idea of where the elephant folio of John James Audubon is. But these are the only major books for which an attempt has been made to do a complete census. So I think, if nothing else, I've brought you something unique in bibliography this afternoon. Thank you.